Well, good evening and uh, welcome once again to this month's Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson-Murray. For those of you who perhaps have never listened to our shows, which run every third Friday of the month from 7 to 8pm, we're both licensed medical herbalists who trained in England and graduated there with a degree in herbal medicine. We run a clinic in Garberville where we consult with clients about a wide range of conditions and recommend herbs, supplements and nutritional counselling. So you're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMUD Garberville 91.1 FM and from 7.30 until the end of the show at 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with any questions either related or unrelated to this month's subject of rheumatism in the broadest sense. It's uh, rheumatoid arthritis and the other arthropathies that I think will uh, be related uh, and an alternative um, treatment uh, to uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, we're very welcome to have Dr. Pete's expertise on the show and, of course, as always, uh, a very counterculture uh, viewpoint, uh, but very positively associated counterculture. It's a very alternative, scientific uh, viewpoint, not mainstream and not even naturopathic. Um, there's a lot of information that he comes out with, uh, very much based and rooted in firm science. Uh, probably the science that some of which has been largely ignored uh, and shelved in favour of new drug treatments because we all know that new drug treatments are hugely profitable uh, and not always uh, beneficial. So we'll, we'll be introducing uh, Dr. Pete here very shortly. Uh, just incidentally, for people listening to the show, uh, if they want to uh, look at Dr. Raymond Pete's uh, articles, he has a... Uh, a pretty extensive list of articles covering many different uh, conditions that people suffer with uh, and the articles are fully referenced uh, scientific articles uh, and they can lead you down uh, a trail that will open your eyes and illuminate for you what it is that he has um, uncovered uh, continued the research that's been done from people back in the 50s and 60s and even before and brought it into a mainstream uh, 21st century uh, appreciation of what we now can detect with our improved uh, skills etc in uh, measuring things but anyway um, so his, way, his uh, website repeat.com has fully referenced articles and um, he doesn't sell them. They're all available there for people to look at, print out, uh, share, etc. We do encourage a lot of free uh, material and free sharing. It's not about making money and making a profit. It's about sharing this wisdom with other people. So uh, the other thing that people might want to uh, make a note of is that on our website, we have a website, uh, westernbotanicalmedicine.com, all of the audio archives are on the website, so people please feel free to download those, uh, share and distribute them as well. I forgot to mention that some time ago we have a uh, comprehensive list of shows from 2009 uh, through 2016. There's one from 2008 there too, I think. Yeah, there's a couple there. Okay, so we can be reached toll-free 1-888-WBM-HERB uh, for consultations or further information uh, Monday through Friday, I was going to say after the show, but we won't be here. <laughs> so Monday through Friday, uh, 9 till 5. Okay, so this month's um, discussion is going to be on uh, alternative um, approaches to the treatment of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. It's an extremely crippling and debilitating condition that affects, I think the uh, last count was um, something like 30 million people uh, in the U.S. and obviously people globally. Uh, it's not just confined to the U.S., so to coin this uh, loose term arthritis, 
uh, we first need to differentiate rheumatoid from osteoarthritis. Uh, osteoarthritis implies a uh, type of joint disease that results from breakdown of joint cartilage and underlying bone. Uh, typical visual clues in the skeleton of the hand, uh, the knuckle joints can display masses that they call uh, Bouchard's nodes and the fingertips uh, have swellings referred to as Heberden's nodes. So this is what we were taught when we were studying herbal medicine. These were very diagnostic indicators and you can see them when people lay their hands on the table, these big swellings that are very typical of osteoarthritis. Uh, the information is typically not red or hot and the underlying cartilage is lost with the bone underneath affected from the wear and tear, and typically only the joints are affected. Now, with rheumatoid, it's a long-lasting autoimmune disorder uh, that primarily affects the joints, resulting in warm, swollen, painful joints. Um, pain and stiffness often worse following rest, and commonly the wrist and hands are involved with the same joints typically involved on both sides of the body. Uh, there can be systemic involvement, which is some of the worst presentations of this type of disease from the autoimmune condition, which can affect red blood cell count, decreasing it, uh, pleurisy and inflammation of the pleura and the lungs, and pericarditis, the same um, sac membrane uh, that the heart has around it. Uh, the inflammation of that is not also uncommon. A fever and low energy may be present as well. So it's multisystemic. Uh, the lungs, the kidneys, the heart and blood vessels can all be affected. So you can look at osteoarthritis as just a wear and tear breakdown of the joint with years of use and rheumatoid as an autoimmune condition where the body's attacking itself. Yeah. So it's three times, there's a couple of factors here that uh, seem to differentiate it or single, single out the uh, targets for it. Three times more common in smokers than non-smokers. I think that's particularly significant, uh, especially in men. And uh, vitamin D deficiency is more common in people with rheumatoid arthritis than in the general population. Um, so from 7.30 until the end of the show, uh, we're opening up the lines for people uh, mm -hmm. who want to call in with questions to uh, ask Dr. Pete. Um, his approach uh, to what he'll be explaining is not... Uh, particularly <laughs> well treated with modern methods like uh, methotrexate, for example, a very toxic compound, very harmful to the liver. Uh, I think also gold, uh, sorts of gold have been mentioned as treatments for it. But anyway, let's um, introduce Dr. Pete. Dr. Pete, are you with us? Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. As always, folks, just recognize that uh, we don't pay Dr. Pete, and uh, he does this very freely, so I do, also, I do very much appreciate your time giving what you do. Um, so, Dr. Pete, uh, in terms of um, what you are uncovering, I know it's, I know it's linked uh, to previous papers that you've written on cancer, and we've mentioned this failed war on cancer, uh, and, and also this, the same war on uh, rheumatism or uh, rheumatoid arthritis is also kind of lost already. It it's very rarely yields anything beneficial and doesn't uh, seem to be really providing too much for patients. In fact, uh, probably making people, uh, I, I would like to say, worse in some ways uh, through the modalities of treatment that are being used because they're not very holistic and they're quite destructive. So how do you, uh, how, how do you first see uh, rheumatoid arthritis as a, uh, a systemic uh, condition, and how do you see it? Um, how do you see it being produced, and then any other um, viewpoints that you have around it? Um, uh, first of all, I, I don't uh, uh, make a clear distinction between any kind of 
right. arthritis, or even between uh, heart failure, atherosclerosis, yeah. uh, uh, various degenerative diseases, uh, and, and any of the forms of arthritis. Uh, I, I think there, uh, the interesting thing is to uh, explain how a few basic metabolic problems uh, have these uh, very different looking expressions uh, and uh, the, the really interesting research over the last 30 years or so has been in uh, uh, showing how inflammation relates to metabolism and uh, what the factors are that uh, can increase inflammation or reduce our ability to uh, resolve it, get over the inflammation. And uh, in the case of uh, rheumatoid arthritis, um, many years ago, I knew two women who were completely disabled uh, with uh, huge uh, swollen knee joints mm -hmm. and uh, uh, hands that they couldn't use. And uh, the, the uh, I was interested in the fact that the condition developed when they started taking estrogen. Uh, uh, one was only in her 30s, and uh, uh, her doctor, uh, when she developed the uh, arthritis, I think he told her that she needed to increase the dose of estrogen because of the uh, very uh, deep belief that estrogen is protective against almost everything. And uh, I spent several hours over a period of two or three weeks uh, going over some of the research with her. And then she would, after each time we talked, she would go back to her doctor and the doctor would say she had to increase the estrogen. But uh, finally, she was getting worse. And uh, she decided just to stop it. Uh, and the other one had, had uh, not taken so long to uh, reconsider and had uh, recovered within a week or two of stopping it. And this one had the same experience, uh, total relief, uh, clearing of the uh, swellings. And uh, uh, that that got me interested in, in why uh, they recovered so fast when they simply stopped estrogen. And uh, so I kept that in mind. And uh, the next person I saw with rheumatoid arthritis was a man about 50, 48 years old uh, who every afternoon his knee would just suddenly swell up hugely. Uh, and during the night it would uh, get better, but he was increasingly disabled, uh, hardly unable to uh, keep working at his, his bench fixing televisions. But uh, remembering the the way the women recovered from when they stopped estrogen, uh, I thought he might have the same imbalance and uh, got him a bottle of uh, 500 milligrams of injectable progesterone, which he uh, covered his leg with uh, all in one application. And about two hours later, the inflammation was down. And uh, the next day, it didn't return. And... I, I saw him, uh, I think it was 40 years later, and he was just starting to get uh, uh, knee inflammation again. Never had a return in all of those years. 
Um, uh, so I was convinced that uh, estrogen uh, had a, a central role, that progesterone uh, could be more curative, apparently, than cortisol. Mm. The glucocorticoids are, right. are the, the main yep. uh, popular treatment, but people usually uh, end up uh, using those for years. And uh, one of the main side effects of the glucocorticoids is loss of bone density. And uh, just, so not what you the, want. the rheumatoid arthritis, which tends to involve overgrowth of the bone around the joint, uh, shades over eventually into uh, breaking of the bones from osteoporosis. And um, I started reading about um, the um, osteoarthritis and saw that uh, some of the uh, studies that were published only in books, not in the medical journals, uh, made a clear association between estrogen and osteoarthritis, even though the medical journals are very consistent in saying uh, osteoarthritis uh, with its loss of bone and cartilage uh, is caused by estrogen deficiency. <laughs> I, I tended to uh, believe that the, uh, the research published in books uh, somehow had been uh, excluded from the journals. And so I, uh, looking at the research on what activates the osteoclasts that cause uh, bone breakdown in uh, osteoarthritis, uh, endotoxin is uh, a major activator of the osteoclast. Mm-hmm. And, so that would have a role to play in both osteoarthritis as well as osteoporosis. Um, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in all of the degenerative diseases. Um, and um, several things uh, follow once you start uh, having endotoxin uh, absorbed in your system. Uh, then you uh, begin overproducing uh, nitric oxide and uh, prostaglandins, for example. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Pete, can you please recap just for our listeners where endotoxin mostly comes from? Um, it, it's produced by bacteria, and um, it, it's a, a combination of uh, uh, fatty acids and uh, uh, carbohydrate, lipopolysaccharide is its chemical name. And the main source is from the intestinal tract? Um, yeah, the intestinal bacteria are always producing it, and uh, we absorb a little bit of it all the time, and it acts as sort of a stimulant to uh, uh, the uh, immune system and other cells are being constantly irritated by it, so it in, in everyday life, it doesn't have a harmful effect. And this uh, is and this is why you're a proponent of the raw carrots because they help to protect against some of that absorption of endotoxin. Um, yeah, the, the bactericidal effect of the carrot uh, suppresses the growth of the bacteria, and then uh, the fiber absorbs and, and stimulates the 
excretion. So, so even in a healthy, <coughs> even in a healthy person that has a healthy digestive tract, uh, this lipopolysaccharide is still going to be produced by commensal, you know, our own uh, gut bacteria that we need. Or um, uh, yeah, and there's always a little bit of it uh, getting into the liver, right. and and uh, uh, probably a little always seeping into the general bloodstream, but in a very small amount, it, it doesn't have those. Uh, serious degenerative effects but when you when you uh, let your liver function slow down uh, it uh, massively gets past the liver barriers and uh, then it starts poisoning uh, all of your your systems uh, increasing nitric oxide and uh, drastically lowering the oxygen metabolism and uh, this is where endotoxin and estrogen uh, Come together. Uh, they both uh, interfere with the metabolic use of oxygen, and so that turns on uh, glycolysis, uh, turning sugar into lactic acid. The lactic acid uh, shifts everything uh, throughout. The more irritated uh, a tissue or organ is, or organ is the uh, uh, the more uh, reduced it is, the, the more electron excess uh, it has. And uh, this shifts uh, everything coherently through that tissue and organ and eventually through the whole organism. So this is the excitotoxic stage? Um, uh, yeah. Where, where these electrons need to be quenched or need to be taken up by electron acceptors? Um, uh, yeah, uh, the concept of reductive stress is now pretty well established, but uh, 50 years ago everyone was thinking about oxidative stress, but uh, really the degenerative processes are exactly the opposite. <laughs> uh, not uh-huh. enough oxygen, too much reduction. Uh-huh. And, and uh, so estrogen and endotoxin do many things that interfere with the use of oxygen and shift us over to the uh, uh, glycolytic lactic acid producing condition in which we, uh, since we can't oxidize uh, glucose, then we are forced to oxidize fats, and that's very inefficient and uh, leads to lipid peroxidation mm-hmm. and the increased production of prostaglandins. Right, which are pain mediators uh, for those people listening. They, they're mediators of pain yeah, and inflammation. And, uh, yeah. if, we're, if our bodies are well loaded with polyunsaturated fats... Which we don't want. <laughs> uh, yeah, then uh, that tends to increase steadily with aging. And so uh, as, as a, a person increases their stores of polyunsaturated fats, every little stress... Uh, becomes more reductive and more inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the prostaglandins act increasingly to amplify right. any little stress. Right. Let me let me just uh, give out some details here, and we'll carry on with uh, your um, your description here. Uh, for those people listening, uh, from seven thirty to eight o'clock, uh, the lines will be open. For those people living in the area, there's an eight seven zero seven number nine two three three nine one one. Oh, there is a toll-free number, one, uh, let me see here, 888, no, <laughs> yeah, 
KMUD rad. So that's uh, 800 Okay, uh, those people that are listening on the web also uh, can uh, contact uh, the studio. Um, very interestingly, had people from uh, Scandinavia, from Europe, uh, from the East Coast. Uh, that's always fun. I think we even have one from uh, South America, didn't we? South America, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, so Dr. P, can I carry on in terms of um, the way you understand rheumatoid arthritis in terms of the processes that you've already mentioned things like um, estrogen obviously in increasing inflammation uh, endotoxin absorption from the gut because of either poor gut um, bacterial habits either you know uh, constipation i'm sure is definitely an exacerbating factor for increasing uh, lipopolysaccharide reabsorption uh, as is uh, diets that are deficient in uh, non-digestible fibers. I know you mentioned lots of uh, things like the carrots and bamboo shoots as indigestible fibers that actually work to remove excess estrogen from the bowel, keep the bowel mobile so that uh, the chances of reabsorption are minimized. So how else do you see the energetic uh, aspect of rheumatoid arthritis and how it manifests in such a wide range of systemic conditions, most, many of which are life-threatening? Um, uh, there are two uh, main directions other than these local processes uh, from the intestine to whatever organ it is that's failing. Uh, that ends up with the prostaglandin uh, amplified inflammation. But meanwhile, uh, the thyroid pituitary system are being affected by the processes of the intestine and the organ itself, which is uh, wasting uh, energy. The, the organ, part of uh, how, say, an inflamed knee uh, affects the thyroid is by leaking substance. A, a weak cell leaks uh, its various components. Uh, proteins, in particular, leak out. And when a cell is under stress, uh, the so-called stress proteins, mm -hmm. which include heat shock proteins okay. and the glucose-regulated proteins. These, uh, are, these are like signals, and these are <coughs> stress signals. They act as a stress signal to the body. Yeah. Uh, uh, the so-called heat shock protein uh -huh. uh, is uh, activated by too much exercise or too little oxygen and glucose, anything that de-energizes or, or uh, uh, especially heat will uh, uh, stimulate the cell while uh, wasting its energy. Uh, so, so these uh, 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 glucose deficiency specifically will uh, bring up the glucose-regulated uh, stress proteins. And all of these are uh, intrinsic stabilizing factors. They're defensive reactions that mm -hmm. sort of... Uh, hold the cell together, uh, acting as chaperones, but uh, they leak out because of the cell's structure being uh, loosened by the, the inflammation and take up of too much water. And these things leak out and become immunogenic. Right, in their own right. Yeah, that's where the, uh, even before there are any signs at all of swollen joints, uh, people can uh, detect 
the rheumatoid factor, uh, the antibody. Right, that's that's a, that's a good point to bring up. I think I I read um, that seventy percent, I think, of um, rheumatoid sufferers have it. Thirty percent don't, and there are some people that have rheumatoid factor in the absence of rheumatoid arthritis, but it's a cofactor in other um, inflammatory processes, uh, inflammatory diseases. Um, yeah, yeah. So I I see it as as a sign of stress that isn't being handled right. that can eventually go in the direction of uh, visibly inflamed and stiffened joints and so on. But what you were getting to is, I think, is that the the rheumatoid factor and the other markers of inflammation are circulating in the blood and they're either poisoning the pituitary, the anterior pituitary, or was it the thyroid gland directly? Um, uh, the... Um, uh, the thyroid is responding to the same stress signals uh, that the local connective tissue is responding to. Um, so that nitric oxide, for example, uh, goes up in the whole organism, and this shifts the, the brain and the pituitary to increase the thyroid-stimulating hormone while blocking the ability of the thyroid gland to produce the hormone. So your your functional hormone goes down while the TSH rises. And even within the normal range of TSH, which uh, currently is something like uh, uh, 0.4 to uh, 5.0, I think. Even though they, supposedly the American Association of Endocrinologists lowered it to 0.3 to 3.3, I think? Um, yeah, but... but even within that normal range, the upper part of the range is now known to uh, be associated with an increased risk of death from cancer and heart disease and other things. Uh, so the, 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 uh, I think the, the best evidence is that you want to keep your TSH low because it's a factor that promotes all types of inflammation, especially uh, the rheumatoid uh, 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 swelling, uh, loss of energy, uh, tumor necrosis factor, uh, interleukins 1 and 6 in particular, and so on. So TSH is a major uh, responder to the stress signals which come from the intestine and the uh, degenerating uh, joints, for example. And the antibodies that have been defined as thyroid-specific antibodies turn out to be joint-specific antibodies as well. Wow. So th things like the uh, uh, TPO, the uh, thyroid peroxidase? Uh, and the thyroglobulin? And, yeah, and the thyroglobulin. Um, yeah, I, I think the thyroglobulin-specific <coughs> uh, enzyme is also specific for, for joint tissue. Wow. And uh, it, probably they'll turn out to uh, have even more over overlaps than that if people uh, begin looking for them. Like with um, heart disease and... Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, the known atherosclerosis uh, associated with rheumatoid arthritis actually uh, doesn't seem to involve attack on the blood vessels by antibodies, but it's simply something going wrong in the whole organism uh, that causes... Uh, 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 more or less simultaneous degeneration of the blood vessels and the joints. 
it, it isn't a, a specific uh, autoimmune process, even though it's the whole organism can be uh, said to be in an autoimmune state. Yeah. But the um, uh, when people were studying uh, viral encephalitis, for example, uh, they found that uh, an antibody in the autoimmune process seemed to be involved, so they uh, engineered the animals so that they could uh, prevent the autoimmune antibody production. And they found that the animals died quicker uh, when they lacked the autoimmune process. So uh, that supports the Jamie Cunliffe polymatzinger approach to what the immune system is, is really doing. Uh, Jamie Cunliffe's idea is that the primary function of what is called the immune system is a, a maintenance of order of the body and its tissues. And when something goes wrong, it, it can be an organism uh, uh, causing uh, damage to the tissues. And in that case, the, the organism is destroyed and creates a specific immunity to, to that type of organism. But that's really, in his view, uh, a side effect of the basic cleanup process. And there, there are many theories of virus or bacteria of various types causing rheumatoid arthritis and the other inflammatory diseases, but um, I don't think you need those. Um, when, you, when you have an energetically precarious tissue uh, condition, uh, it just takes any little cause to tip it over the edge into an uncontrolled uh, degeneration and inflammation. Yeah, I think uh, what comes over time and time again, I think that most people really kind of lose sight of, is that if you want to put out that glib term, you know, we're all connected as human beings on the planet, uh, the same interconnectedness exists in our body where nothing nothing is done in isolation um so if you mention an organ or a uh, tissue in any part of the body uh, being affected obviously the blood uh, is passing through that organ or through that tissue and carried to the rest of the body uh, whether it's through the vasculature or through the lymphatics anything that is in any kind of degenerate state in one small location the effects of that are far-reaching. And like you said, when uh, things like uh, the uh, thyroid-stimulating hormone is picked up again uh, and re is in circulation, even in relatively low amounts, none of it is actually good. It's, um, it's pretty much a, um, uh, an inflammatory marker in itself. And so the same thing with gut-related uh, dysbiosis or, uh, you know, whether it's a local trauma to one small area in the body, uh, it all has a potential to seed the whole body with these signals, these markers, these shock proteins, these defensive cries for immune cells to come in and start unloading uh, various chemicals and uh, in a kind of defensive mechanism to try and uh, restore, repair. Um, but it's very important to get the concept of um, healthy eating and healthy living is not just, you know, one day and then not the next or you know it's got to be a lifestyle change and so 
what I'm re- reaffirms what reaffirms uh, everything that you're saying and have been saying for years and years now. That we've been interviewing you for quite a few years. I sometimes catch myself thinking, well, you know what? It's, it's a lot of it is uh, thyroid and progesterone and uh, all these other anti-inflammatories, and, and 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 but they are so key. They're so key to maintaining structural integrity, energetic uh, resilience. Uh, and these people that you've mentioned, Jamie Cunliffe, uh, uh, Matt Singer, uh, and then Mechnikoff and all the other, you know, kind of brilliant-minded uh, people that you've mentioned in the past all have this very uh, holistic picture. And then we talk about holism as a very glib term and kind of think about, you know, I don't know, but, <laughs> but I don't want to say what it is just in case it offends anybody because they do it. But uh, the holistic approach is very much a... A way of life and these things that you've mentioned whether it's progesterone whether it's thyroid whether it's vitamin d these are all things that we should have adequate quantities of but our diets have uh, been radically degraded over the years our environment for yeah, right, in the water everything so it's a constant plastics our, our own bodies are a constant uh melee you know it's just a constant war going on to try and maintain homeostasis and energy uh doesn't always work and uh there are plenty of things that can be introduced into someone's lifestyle on a daily basis that will certainly mitigate these effects it's uh, 7:35, and i just want to let people know that uh the phones are open the local number is uh 923 uh 2511 uh, beg your pardon and the 800 numbers uh, 1-800-KMUD-RAD. So uh, we're taking calls into 8 o'clock. Uh, I think I see the lights flashing, but so Yeah, Dr. B, I wanted to um, have you go over a little bit more since it seems to be uh, over the intestinal tract and the effect we can have on that in reducing these inflammatory mediators that seem to be starting up the whole inflammation. Well, let's before before we do that, hold that thought, Sarah. Let's take this caller because they, they've uh, been waiting here. So, uh, Caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? What's your question? Hi, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. Hi, what's your question? Hi, I listened to your July 2013 recording on uh, your website, Western Botanical Medicine's radio archive page. Okay. And uh, Dr. Pete, you mentioned that it's beneficial on that recording for women to have their monthly menstrual cycles throughout their entire lives, which I was really surprised about. So I have two questions regarding that point. One, why is lifelong fertility beneficial for women? And two, what do women need to do to achieve that? Um, the um, one of the th- things about the um, the cycle and uh, degenerative diseases uh, that people have noticed is that uh, rheumatoid arthritis is frequently uh, completely uh, resolved during a pregnancy and then returns uh, afterwards. And I think it's the huge production of progesterone that the placenta takes over during pregnancy. And uh, in both animals and humans, uh, the number of pregnancies during a lifetime uh, correlates very well with longevity. The more uh, babies produced, the longer the, the mother lives and the better the health is. Uh, and uh, that, if you look at uh, the age of puberty, um, the mortality rate uh, decreases from infancy uh, when uh, the, the organism uh, is very dependent on conditions. Uh, as it grows and becomes more autonomous uh, at 
around the age of 12, the uh, likelihood of dying is very, very low. Then from puberty on, there's a steady increase in the risk of, of dying from any cause. And uh, I think that's the, the same uh, estrogen uh, risk factor that uh, when uh, the organism is detecting something in the environment uh, that is threatening, it turns on the reproductive apparatus. Uh, and uh, when that apparatus is working efficiently, it, it produces these huge amounts of progesterone that have a life-protecting, anti-inflammatory, life-extending effect. Uh, but if the estrogen isn't uh, adequately compensated uh, because of low thyroid or toxins, anything interfering with progesterone, uh, then uh, the, uh, the estrogen uh, cyclically produces damage to the organism and uh, accelerates the aging process. So the, the reason that a cycle is valuable to maintain is uh, that what shuts it off is the failure uh, to uh, produce enough progesterone. So even though the actual production of estrogen uh, decreases somewhat at menopause, the effect of estrogen uh, making uh, the inflammatory factors that lead to degeneration, uh, those become persistent in the absence of the cyclic production of progesterone. Uh, uh, so it would be better if you could delay puberty to the age of 70 or 80, uh, but in the absence of that ability, then having the regular, uh, fairly generous production of progesterone is what makes it, it uh, valuable to keep cycling as long as you can. Wow, that's fascinating. Thank you so much, and thank you for all your work, Dr. Pete. Okay, thank you for your call, caller. Okay, so the number here, if you're in the area, is 923-3911. Uh, the area code is 707. Uh, if you're on the web or you're outside, toll-free number is 1-800-KMUD-RAD, R-A-D. Uh, so we're taking calls until 8 o'clock. So, Dr. Pete, um, getting back to rheumatoid arthritis and uh, the manifestations, um, I I came I came upon a fairly old uh, uh, gosh on an encyclopedia if you like, but it was uh, quite quite an old text, and they mentioned quite a few different types of arthritis, and some of which I didn't uh, I didn't recognise, but um, obviously I think some of these older documents uh, would list things that we've kind of tend to forget now. Uh, one one was an arthritis uh, from mumps, and I don't even know if people know what mumps are anymore because I mean I had them when I was a child, but um, mumps are not that common these days and then um, arthritis of leprosy so there were infective um, arthritis uh, either gonococcal or tuberculosis uh, tuberculous um, arthritis so that these um, types of arthritis could also be bacterial in origin um, now whether or not any of the compounds that um, I kind of made a note of here, uh, whether they are herbal or isolated chemical compounds that have been used in the treatment of arthritis are directly due to the antimicrobial effect. Uh, and probably the antimicrobial effect in the gut is uh, unknown, but berberis and berberine-containing herbs um, were certainly implicated in uh, reducing 
bacterial load, uh, and this bacterial antibacterial action, uh, I would think, probably has a, uh, a definitive uh, action uh, on uh, endotoxin production and/or general gut health. So herbs like organ grape, barberry, bark, golden seal root, mm, and coptus. you mentioned a couple uh, Chinese herbs. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you have you had much experience with um, berberine or uh, knowing uh, its antimicrobial activity? Um, no, none at all. I, oh. I've eaten the the Oregon grapes as jelly, but that's <laughs> the extent of my experience with berberine. Okay, all right. Because I know they mentioned uh, coptis, which is a Chinese medicinal uh, golden thread. I'm pretty sure it's called, and that's actually an adulterant of golden seal because it's a lot cheaper. But uh, apparently, it's a very bright yellow, very much like golden seal root. But it contains uh, a pretty high concentration of berberine. That's definitely uh, was indicated here for uh, rheumatoid, and I think from an antibacterial point of view. I thought I read in one of those articles that Dr. Pete sent the abstracts that berberus actually blocked nitric oxide. Yeah, that that would be my first thought about how it's working. That because infections uh, of any sort are going to increase nitric oxide and impair oxidative energy production, right. which goes back to what I was trying to say earlier about the intestines and eating foods that feed the bacteria that then make the endotoxin that then poisons the system and creates that vicious circle of inflammation. The berberus, the berberine-containing herbs are very antibacterial, and then they're also stopping the nitric oxide production if they're antibacterial and stopping the bacteria. Okay, well, we've got a couple of callers here, so let's take the first caller. Caller, you're on the air. Where are you from? Hello? Yeah, you're on the air. Where are you from? And what's hey. your question? Uh, uh, I, I'm calling from a little farther north than you are. Okay. Um, I had some questions about vitamin D. Okay. Uh, why are the stores selling vitamin D3 and not vitamin D2? Uh, I had a doctor prescribe me vitamin D2. And um, and then what are the effects of vitamin D on weight gain and weight loss? And uh, and what are the issues having to do with toxicity, maybe taking too much vitamin D? Right. Okay. Uh, Dr. P, uh, the difference between the vitamin D3 and D2, Did you, you said you were prescribed D2? Yeah, I, I, the doctor told me he thought I was low, and then I was tested, and I was low. And uh, he told me to take 5,000 units of vitamin D3 a day. Oh, you said D3. And, and that's D3. on the shelf. And then he prescribed me 50,000 units uh, once a week of vitamin D2. And uh, and then, I don't know, it seemed like uh, six weeks or two months later, I noticed a change in my 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 hunger patterns mm-hmm. and uh, last a couple times I went to the doctor I'd lost weight yeah. and I haven't really checked on it since to see if things are happening like that but no. um, and it seems like my hunger's returned a little bit more back the way it was but um, it occurred to me that I, I could see that vitamin D might you know it's a, you get more in the summer and it might mm-hmm. fit in with weight gains and weight losses that would be normal to people in northern and southern hemispheres. Yeah. And, um, but when I go to the store, to see if you can just buy vitamin T on, on the shelf. It's not there. The vitamin D2 is not right. there. Right. And, um, I mean, if it, 
is going to help me lose weight. You know, I'd like to take, you know, lots of it. That'd be nice, you know. <laughs> Dr. Pete. It's really nice not to be, like, starving hungry all the time. Sure. Dr. Pete, from an energetic point of view, um, how would you would you describe the difference between D2 and D3? Um, no, I don't know of any no. real evidence, but there were some publications around 1970 and uh, at arguing that D2... Uh, was uh, contributing to atherosclerosis hmm. and calcification of blood vessels. And uh, up until that time, milk had been uh, uh, reinforced with uh, vitamin D2, right. and suddenly every milk producer in the country around that time uh, just quietly shifted to D3. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was really just a few papers with with superficial uh, largely opinions rather than facts but it, it uh, convinced most people to stop taking the risk of of using the uh, the fungal form of vitamin d right do you, do you think there's an energetic in, uh, i'm sure i'm sure there is a metabolic energetic improvement of course then from d2 that might explain that uh, from d or d d3 or d2 that would explain its uh, weight loss uh, well yeah uh, I think it's the parathyroid hormone, which is suppressed by calcium and vitamin D. Uh, Both types of vitamin D will will keep the uh, parathyroid hormone down. Uh, And uh, so calcium and vitamin D both uh, reduce inflammation in multiple ways. Uh, And uh, the reduced inflammation goes with uh, a more uh, productive efficient, uh, higher rate of metabolism, uh, keeping uh, the uh, weight gain down, uh, stopping the the production of of fat from uh, protein and sugar. Okay. And from um, taking too much or uh, monitoring your levels so you don't get too much, you want to have a blood test, you know, every couple months until you find a stable level. You don't really want it any higher than 75 and you don't really want any lower than 50. So 50 to 75 is a, a good reference range to have for your vitamin D level, and you'd want to check it. You wouldn't want to just take a load of it because it can be harmful in high levels. Okay. Well, what I noticed was, and I'm not sure this is due to the vitamin D, but um, not much else has happened, was that I would come in the house, say, after doing a lot of physical labor, and I could actually... Uh, take a shower and take a rest, and I wouldn't have to eat like immediately. And that is very noticeable, not to be hungry like that all the time. Well, it's and probably helping your liver store doctor, sugar I, better. I kept losing weight. So that, that, and I'm not sure what's causing that. So, but thanks a lot. Yeah. Okay. You're welcome. Okay. There are really a lot of publications showing that a high calcium and vitamin D intake will do almost everything good, and including. Uh, the avoidance of uh, abdominal fat uh, tending to uh, have a leaner body and uh, keeping especially inflammation uh, down. And it's just important to note that um, listeners, when you want to take vitamin D, if you change your dose or start taking it, it takes eight weeks to get to a plateau level before you'd want a blood test. And you can do finger prick tests. They're available online. Okay, so milk, milk and vitamin D, uh, very beneficial. So we have another one or two callers. Let's set the next caller on the air. You're on the air. And where are you from, caller? Hello, um, I'm from Arcata. 
Okay, okay. What's your question? Uh, my question is, uh, I'm diabetic, and um, I read some research that said the little cells that put out the insulin mm-hmm. don't really die. They just Correct. Sort of in your pancreas, they just become like juveniles again. Yeah. <laughs> Pancreatic and, uh, beta cells. And uh, I, I just wanted to know if if it is possible to wake them up. On if Dr. Pete has any advice about um, diabetes, I believe it's type one. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. P, um, senescent uh, pancreatic uh, beta cells. For type 1 diabetes. Um, yeah, the, the beta cells are always tending to regenerate, uh, but they die quickly when, when you're having uh, diabetes. And the, the factor that seems to be the main thing that kills them as they are being reborn is... Uh, lipid peroxidation hmm. uh, and so right. getting your uh, polyunsaturated fats down I, I think uh, aspirin would be one of the protective things mm-hmm. but uh, glucose happens to be the thing that maintains the renewal uh, constant regeneration of the beta cells uh, so keeping the the metabolism under control so that you aren't uh, 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 Degenerating the uh, the polyunsaturated fats into uh, lipid peroxides and prostaglandins uh, is the thing to keep in mind. And this takes a, a long time. It takes four years to replace your fat cells completely. Uh, totally, but, but you can make yeah. a, a big change right away. So replace yeah, your vegetable oils. Using polyunsaturated fats based on your <laughs> advice. I mean. Uh, uh, and we'll continue to do so and appreciate the advice and your research. Um, are you saying aspirin is helpful? If you said that? Um, uh, yeah, aspirin improves insulin sensitivity. Um, oh, it does. Huh. Uh, like the baby aspirin 81 milligram dosage, would you recommend, or like a regular big old aspirin? Um, one thing to uh, remember if you're going to supplement any quantity of aspirin for a long time is to make sure your vitamin K is adequate. Uh, taking right. a supplement of vitamin K is a good idea because uh, chronic aspirin uh, will um, tend to give you a, a bleeding uh, syndrome if right. you're deficient in K. So the dose is per one aspirin, one 325 milligram aspirin, you'd want to be taking one milligram of vitamin K. K2. And mm-hmm. it is... Um, on Amazon, the Thorn Research is a very pure form that's just in a medium chain triglyceride drop form, and one drop is one milligram, and that would oh. counteract the bleeding tendency you could get from taking one aspirin. But Doctor, how much would you recommend? Is a um, a good kind of dose for helping to block that lipid peroxidation? Uh, well, vitamin E and aspirin have overlapping effects, and and so the, the amount of uh, PUFA that you have stored in your tissues uh, is what governs the amount of those that you need. Okay. Well, let, let's, we've got two more callers, I think. So let's get these next callers. Um, thank you for your uh, question, caller. And let's take the next one. Where are you from? What's your question? I'm from Ukaipa. Okay. What's your question? Uh, I have a question about T3. Does it affect TSH? It certainly does. Dr. Pete. Uh, what was 
question. Uh, does T3 affect TSH? Oh, oh yeah, 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 it does. Um, uh, but um, the um, since you normally have a much higher level of T4 circulating in the body, uh, the pituitary uh, has the ability to convert T4 to T3 locally. Uh, so usually T4 is what is suppressing the TSH, but uh, if you get enough T3 uh, into your brain and pituitary, then it's uh, at least as effective as T4. Okay, we've got two more callers, so thank you. Can I ask one more question? Uh, Yeah, quickly, go ahead. Uh, Reverse T3, what's the mechanism of action? How does that affect metabolism? Um, Apparently, it's um, partly... uh, occupying the same response site that the active T3 would and simply competing against it. And even T4 can out-compete T3 if there's too much T4. Uh, But there are uh, local uh, deiodinase enzymes uh, that uh, some of them uh, can uh, eliminate reverse T3, and if, if those are blocked, uh, by uh, some stress uh, uh, substances, uh, then the, the local reverse T3 can accumulate. So uh, the systemic uh, uh, level of uh, T3 and reverse T3 are, are both important, but they aren't the absolute uh, factor that determines how effective T3 will be. That's why taking temperatures and pulses will tell you if you're getting enough T3, or if your body's converting the T4 that you might be taking or producing naturally into T3. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, we have two more callers. Let's see if we can get through these callers uh, with quick answers that uh, will satisfy the next caller. Where are you from? What's your question? Is that me? Yes, go ahead. Your your question? Hi. Hi. I have two quick questions. One, um, you mentioned about endotoxin and uh, causing a problem in the bacteria, and I I've been confused about whether probiotics are a good thing or a bad thing as far as that goes. Um, so that, that was one question. Mm-hmm. And then the other question is about how much exercise is too much exercise. Right. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll quickly speak for Dr. Pete for the exercise one. Any exercise that keeps you or makes you out of breath is not good for you. So gentle, moderate exercise, gentle weight-bearing exercise, uh, definitely what you want. Or if uh, you do have those cardiac bursts, then don't let them last for too long because what you will do is go into the anaerobic respiration. And produce lactic so acid. If you're just walking and, um, you know, your heart rate's raised a little bit, you know, but you're breathing yeah. fine, I mean, you're not, yeah. like, huffing that's, and puffing, is that okay? That's, that's ideal. You don't want to be over-breathing and you don't want to get your heart rate up too much. So walking is uh, gentle walking or just gentle weight-bearing exercise. So, doc- okay. Dr. Pete, what do you say about probiotics in terms of the uh, addition to the endobacteri- endotoxin load, uh, pros and cons of uh, probiotics? Um, usually they're helpful, but not always. Yeah. And it depends on the particular species, and uh, the individual uh, probably can judge best by how, how you feel when you take it. Yeah, like some species will cause a lot of gas in people, and I think that's harmful. Um, uh, yeah, it, some people really get worse when they take uh, certain probiotic, prebiotics or probiotics. Yeah. 
particular reaction, I think, should determine it. Because everybody's a commensal bacteria and their intestines are different anyways, so you're introducing another one in the interactions. Okay, we've got about two minutes left, and we do have one more caller, so rather than not giving him a chance, let's just take this next call away from and watch your Hello. Question? Yeah, you know, I, I heard you say that having more babies would prolong your life. I didn't hear the whole answer because I was interrupted for a few minutes, but mm-hmm. you were saying that... Um, the more babies you have, the longer you tend to live. Um, Wait, just... Before there was birth control, women got worn out having too many babies. <laughs> well, there were, there were women that had 12 and 13, 14 children, so they uh, must have been doing pretty good to well, produce Well, but not that. always. Uh, the guy that built the Taj Mahal, his wife died having her 14th child. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I have a friend who got pregnant at 48 with her uh, seventh child, and mm-hmm. they told her, you know, she would not probably make it through the pregnancy. I, th- and, I, I mean, uh, one lady I know had 10 children and almost died having a 10th. I mean, Dr. You know. Pete, do you have yeah. a comment on that? Uh, yeah, there was a study in Hungary that looked at the whole population over a span of a lifetime, and they graphed the number of babies and the age at death of the mothers, and it was a very smooth perfectly straight increase in longevity with the number of babies up to eight. When was this? Up to eight babies. Did you hear that, caller? Yeah, I heard you up to eight. That's not 13 or 14. When was this study done in Hungary? Dr. Pete, did you hear She The caller is asking, when was the study done in Hungary? Oh, um, I read it in uh, the 1970s, and I think it... Uh, was probably done around 1968 or 69. Okay, we better okay. we better hold okay, it there, yeah. folks. <laughs> thanks for your call. Uh, well, as always, Dr. Pete, thanks for uh, being, um, gosh, being so giving uh, of your time and your energy and your knowledge. Uh, thanks so much. I'll just give people your details. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Good night. Okay, so for those people uh, who've heard the show tonight and maybe not heard Dr. Pete uh, explain uh, his scientific rationale of uh, approaching things that we often find bad evidence for, uh, his website is www.raypeat.com, fully referenced articles, well worth a look. Uh, Go check it out. He doesn't charge any money for them. They're all free. Uh, We can be reached toll-free, 1-888-WBMRB, Monday through Friday. Um, my name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson Murray. Thanks for listening and have a good night. Until next no- uh, n- November. Yep. See you then.